Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Legge, flying solo again this week with Peter Lim overseas and rumored to be lying on a beach in Malta. My special guest on the show today is Dr. Cheryl McCurdy, assistant professor at the University of Texas Houston School of Public Health, where she focuses on issues of sexual and reproductive health and health delivery systems. Trained in history and anthropology, Dr. McCurdy received the Master's in Development Studies from the University of Dar es Salaam and her PhD in Sociomedical Sciences from Columbia University. She's published on a wide variety of topics from spirit possession to venereal disease and infertility in pre-colonial and colonial Tanganyika to domestic violence in Houston, Texas. She and Dorothy Hodgson co-edited the book Wicked Women and the Reconfiguration of Gender in Africa, published in 2001 by Heinemann. And McCurdy's most recent work has been with heroin users in Tanzania, a topic that she will speak on later today at Michigan State University in a, a talk entitled Violence, Alcohol, and Drugs in East Africa, sponsored by the History Department, the Center for Gender and Global Context, and other uh, MSU units. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Nice to be here. Very interesting topic, the um, uh, heroin users of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And the first question that popped into my mind as I looked at your abstract for the talk was, what's the history of drug use, particularly maybe heavy drug use, in uh, the city of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania? You know, it's interesting. It's, it's very much tied in with, um, I think, really the post-IMF situation, structural adjustment. Heroin started appearing um, in along the East African coast and in Dar es Salaam and, and Tanzania in the 80s. And there was a lot of smoking that went on in the 80s and in the 90s. And what happened um, at the end of the 90s, I don't know if people had just built up tolerance, but around the end of the 90s, people started injecting. So what it, how the use had just transformed really quickly. And the the product transformed and there are different products being brought in in terms of the type of heroin that was being brought in. So for almost 20 years, people had in Zanzibar and Dar, Tonga, probably in Moshi and, and Arusha, also along with Mombasa and Nairobi, been smoking it. Um, and they had smoked it in tobacco um, in open areas. So if you don't really know the smell of heroin in tobacco or in marijuana, you wouldn't know. So people were smoking it, they'd go to a football game and somebody would pass them a cigarette and they'd think that they were maybe smoking just a cigarette, um, but actually they were smoking what they call a joint. A joint is cigarette combined with heroin. Um, and then if you have, when you have marijuana combined with heroin, it's called a cocktail. So these are different, they switch into English. There's a lot of code switching. Whenever they start talking about drugs, they switch into English. And for a long time it, it had been only brown that had been circulating, probably coming in from Asia. and. Around uh, 2000, 2001, there was a, all of a sudden white started appearing. In Kenya they call it white crust, but in, in Tanzania actually they call it white or cocaine. But it's, it's white heroin. And it was so pure that it didn't need to be cooked anymore. And they could just put it into a, into a syringe needle packet that they could pick up at a pharmacy for 10 cents and shake it up and inject it. And I think part of it was all of a sudden it became fashion. I mean, there had been this movement post-IMF and the opening up of the borders and people moving between Europe and Asia more often. Some of the 
youth had picked up the habit in Pakistan, some had picked it up in Italy, some had been moving back and forth, some, you know, with the tourists coming in, some people had been exposed to it from the tourist industry. So there's all sorts of ways. It was part of the whole globalization process, too. So it sort of just all together came together. It was interesting how people talk about it. They say, oh, it just became the fashion. You know, like people wanted cell phones. They saw cell phones. They wanted them. Some people saw people injecting. They're like, I want to do that, too. Is there a Swahili word for heroin? Unga is the Swahili word for it. It means flour or powder, you know. So, so it's, yeah, it's unga. Um, or they use white, but they say unga. And um, they went through stages until white came. They went through stages of, you know, once they built up a tolerance to smoking it, they would start to snort it and they'd say sniff, sniff. And then people would be able to tolerate that for maybe six months and then they would lose their sense of smell and that would sort of scare them and they'd move on to chasing the dragon, which is the term that's used in Asia. They call it chase. They just use it, just the English word chase in, in Dar es Salaam. So they say, Miminafanya chase, now no, I'm doing chase. And they would take apart a big pan and use that big pan and take apart a cigarette foil from the, from the packet and then have a match or you know, candle, a lighter that they would light it up and then it, inhale it through the, through the big pan and they call that Kufanya chase. And after a few months, maybe even 18 months, they would, their lungs couldn't really tolerate that any longer and so they'd have to quit. And at that point, a lot of people moved into injecting. And so then with brown, you had to cook it, you'd mix it with lime, they'd take a gin bottle, a konyagi bottle, and, and you know, squirt some lime into it and a little bit of water and the, the powder and mix it up. And then they had to boil it for a little bit, let it sit, and then they would inject that up. So they'd say kushut. Now I, I'm shooting myself, kunjak, so. In your ethnographic work, um, you must have uh encountered some very interesting situations. Uh, how do you study uh, a group of uh, drug addicts who are, I assume, operating under the radar of, of the police and, and probably having uh, tense relations with neighbors or community members and, and, and the state and so on? So how did you go about uh, tracking the users and, and what did you find when you got there? Well, it's actually Unfortunately, I couldn't do an ethnography, and this was because the the folks. My um, this is a project that's being done uh, cooperatively with the uh, University of Texas Houston and Muhimbili University Health and Science Center, uh, MUHAS now. And my the PIs in the the primary investigators in the principal investigators in. Um, at Muhimbili had asked me never to go into a shooting gallery and to. So I, I've never been able to observe the use. And it was basically to protect the participants, but they also, I think, feared for my safety, and they just didn't want to have to deal with and it. So these, these shooting galleries are similar? Yeah, or you, you've been told, uh, we maybe they've been worker. described uh, yeah, to oh, you by, by specialists. Them, yeah. are, are they similar, different from what you may find in an American city, for example? No, actually, they're similar to what you find anywhere in the world. They have the same sort of shooting galleries. Um, I mean, the different settings, of course, but um, the shooting galleries there, we have outreach workers that go in that are Tanzanian, so they bring back the information to me, and then I have the drug users also explain it. So even though I'm not in the site, I'm hearing about right. it. And, um, so there are the three different types that you find anywhere. There is the one where you pay, so it's the cash ghetto. They call it ghetto. 
Um, shooting gallery is a ghetto. And, um, a ghetto is any young man's room. And so you hear about it in Swahili hip hop songs all the time, my ghetto, I bring my girlfriend back to my ghetto, which is in a rented room in a compound. But it also is being used ghetto by the drug users to say, the safe place where they go to inject or inhale. Um, and there's, um, so there's, there's taste where you wait, so there's cash where you pay to get in, and then there's taste where you give some of the heroin to the person who operates the gallery, and then there is free, so your friend will let you go in. So those three kinds exist in lots of different areas, so you can go from different places. It used to be located right next to the person or in the home of the person that sold, and then that got dicey with the police activity, so they didn't want to be associated with the users. The users moved further away. Um, people had their own sorts of uses. It was concentrated in Carriaco with larger sort of drug barons running it all. It wasn't meant to be a consumer item in Tanzania. It was meant, it was only being brought in and trafficked, brought into East Africa, and then re being repackaged to send to Europe and the U.S. And then there was a, just a fallout. So people who were packaging it, people who were tasters, making sure that the quality of the drug became addicted, and then the, you know, the movement and the you know, connection. This Interesting. They, you know, just, it just started dropping out locally. So you see a movement from people being concentrated in Carriaco to moving out to the next layer of suburbs, and mostly men operating it then, and now it's moved even to the further suburbs, and they're just sort of like mom-pop shops, so men and women are selling it in lots of different places. How widespread is the phenomenon? It's all over Dar es Salaam. I don't think it's reached you know, the furthest suburbs yet, but it's ev pretty much everywhere we can find it. So when we first started, um, the first survey that we did, this was funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, we had a survey where we recruited 337 users in, I don't know, three months. It wasn't hard at all. We hadn't asked for uh, anyone to enroll in voluntary counseling and testing, so we didn't know what the status was of anyone in terms of HIV, because this is an HIV prevention project. And so we asked at that point, could we get users to bring in their needles, and got that approved by the IRB in DAR and, and in Texas. And people started bringing their needles, so we didn't know who had been using, they weren't identified at all, but from different neighborhoods so that we could get an idea. And from one of the more upscale neighborhoods, the, all of the needles that were brought in were 90% you know, HIV positive from just the needles, we didn't know. 50% in different neighborhoods, and as you got further out, uh, out of town, those were completely negative. There was no HIV in the suburbs, the farthest suburbs. So when we started the second project in 2004, 2005-2006, we insisted that everyone in, that wanted to be a participant in the study enroll in voluntary counseling and testing and find out their HIV status. And they had told us in 2003-2004 in the in-depth interviews that I had done that they didn't want to do that and that they didn't, wouldn't participate. And I had said, you know, I think this is going to be a failure. but. At that point, ARVs weren't available, the antiretrovirals, right. and by 2005 they were. So people not only came and wanted to be tested, they came back with their partners and wanted to be tested. So they were very excited about that possibility of knowing their status and enrolling in um, antiretrovirals because we would refer them. And we also told anyone who participated in the study that they could go through um, the Mental Health Institute at the psychiatric department at Muhambili to go through free detox which no one really did because they don't consider it a drug treatment program. They're put in with the mentally ill in the same room. Um, there's nothing there except Valium and a drip. And they can get Valium on the streets or in a pharmacy and don't need a script. And they didn't feel like, you know, so they didn't really feel like it was an option or a treatment center, so they didn't go. Um, 
anyway, we did do the voluntary counseling and testing in, this, in the second, so we have HIV stats on folks, and we found that this population, in spite of the fact that at that time, nationally, the seroprevalence was 7%, had gone down to 7% by 2006, 2007. Within this population, it was 42% of HIV positivity. Wow, that's incredible. And when you divide it by sex, men are 28% and women are 64%. Well, that brings up the, the, your focus in particular on sort of the gender dimensions of uh, this phenomenon. Can you tell us some of the, the, the other facts that you uncovered uh, about uh, how men and women users uh, are experiencing this and what are the main concerns along gender lines? Well, they just live different lives. So no matter who they were initiated into drug use by, so if, even if uh, a girlfriend or a boyfriend had initiated them into drug use and they had hung out with them, everyone's cycling through prison. So if, even if they'd been a couple, they were split apart. And at some point, men seem to end up hanging out in, in gangs. Even now, they're, they're gangs of drug users that are male. And the women start hanging out on their own. And the men are all involved in day labor or what they call, you know, anywhere in the world with heroin addicts is rip and run where you just steal to support your habit. But a lot of people are engaged in, a lot of men are engaged in day labor also. And um, they can, the minimum wage at this point in time, 2005, 2006, was $60 a month. And so men could barely make that much money. And at that time, well, 2003, 2004, when we started, um, a hit of heroin was a kete that they measured as like two thirds of your small finger. That much was 50 cents. So you needed a certain, you know, maybe people were injecting 50 cents worth three times a day. And by 2005, 2006, people were injecting. It was, it had become adulterated. The white had become adulterated because they had the clientele. Sure. So they had the, you know, the users there. They didn't need to recruit them anymore in that way. So it became adulterated. The price tripled. Um, people were having to have three kites to inject each time, so they had to have nine kites, and things got difficult anyway. So the men had more and more trouble getting enough, and they started sharing needles more than women do. So the men get up in the morning, and they would say, you know, I get up in the morning, I brush my teeth, and I'm out on the streets, I'm looking for my next, where I'm going to get my money, and then I get enough money, I go get my drug and shoot up, and then I, you know, start the cycle all over again. Women, on the other hand, always have enough money because most of them, 89% of the folks that were in our survey anyway were, were sex workers. And through sex work they were able to make, you know, this is a time when the minimum wage was $60, they were able to make 250 um, a month minimum, and some were making over 400 So depending on a lot of things about their health but, um, and their age. But um, so women wake up, they have gone to sleep, they, that's how they describe it, they've gone home with either a dose of heroin or enough money to buy one easily. So they wake up around noon, inject themselves, hang out, have something to eat, hang out with their friends, um, maybe go to a shooting gallery and shoot up again, and then they go out on the street at night. So around seven, eight, nine o'clock at night, they're out on the street, and every time they were able to score any money, they would be able to inject again. So they just inject again all through the night until they didn't have any more. And during 2005, 2006, so men and women are living very different lives. Women are right. living with other women because they're partner, if they had a male partner, um, is, had been in jail and wasn't you know, around or maybe had quit using. And um, so they end up, women are living together, they're sharing a room, they're paying maybe 50 cents a day for the room, then they're going out on the streets together, they're injecting together, they watch out for the clients together, making sure that somebody comes home safely, they go home together, and you know, really spending all their time alone. So um, the only places where men and women were meeting was the shooting gallery. Um, in the shooting gallery in the afternoons, men 
we're becoming more and more angry about the fact that women always had drugs and you know, and when I would ask again, you know, okay, so it's a group of men and women and you're all friends and you have the drug, how is it divided up and who gets to shoot first? And they're like, well, it depends on how much you care if somebody's going through withdrawal. But the person with power and the person with, um, gets, that has the decision making, it doesn't have anything to do with gender, it has everything to do with money. And so whoever has the money and the drug has the power and they get to shoot up first and then whoever they decide, they're gonna help. And so, you know, women had a lot of power at this point in time. Men got mad, started getting really angry, started stealing works right out of women's arms, um, breaking bottles, holding women at a bottle point, knife point, taking all their money, taking all of their drugs. And there was a shift then in gender relations. Women moved out of the, the shooting gallery, started their own. Um, anyway. And then I think you published uh, a work with uh, some of your uh, co-researchers on particular techniques, right, that, mm -hmm. that men and right. women have developed in, da in Dar to shoot up heroin. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of them that you mentioned was flash blood and the other one you mentioned was uh, Vinpoint. Yeah. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it yeah. correctly, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about sure. those techniques? Because it's really interesting in how it relates to these gender okay. Well, aspects. what happened during this time of sort of violence in the shooting galleries in 2006, when actually it started in 2005, the flash blood, um, f what the culture, every every community has its own way of injecting. And so in Dar es Salaam, what people do is they inject three times. So they inject once, and then they pull back a full syringe of blood. They inject it again. They pull back again. They inject it again. They say that that way, you can really feel it steam in your head. You can really feel high, the high that way. And so that's generally what people do. But women who felt sorry for their friends who were so sick that they weren't able to attract clients so they didn't have any money and they didn't have any drug would be in a shooting gallery with someone and they'd be begging for some drug or a hit. So instead of that, what they would do is they'd inject it once. And instead of doing it three times, they'd inject once, pull back the whole vial of blood, so three or four cc's of their own blood, and hand it to their friend who then would inject the three or four cc's of blood of their friend's blood right into their vein. And they believed, and our outreach workers said, that they nodded off as if they just got a hit. And the scientists I've talked to have said there's no way there's enough heroin for anything to happen, so all they're doing is very efficient, you know, transmission of any blood-borne trans, you know, any blood-borne pathogens. Right. But um, men, so men are, at the same time, this, this V-point is where you actually are sharing, so you all know that you have an, you've contributed enough money to the drug, so that you get one cc, and you can only pull up that much from the gin cap, gin bottle cap, and pull that much out, then you hand it to the next person who maybe washes it out with water and then passes it to the next person who injects their bit. This, this is called jerking in Pakistan, and it happened at exactly the same time in Pakistan. So we don't know whether it started in Tanzania or in Pakistan, because there's a lot of movement back and forth. And at the time, in 2005, the, the flash blood thing was a woman's thing. V-point was what men did more because they were sharing more because they were more desperate. And um, studies since then have shown that men have started injecting, doing flash blood, and it's, it's gone to, to Zanzibar now, and men in Zanzibar are injecting flash blood. So people were hoping this was just going to be a sort of a flash in the plan sort of thing, and it wouldn't continue, but unfortunately it's spreading. In this country, there's been a war on drugs for, in the United States for many, many, some would say too many years. Uh, is there a similar war on drugs uh, being waged by the Tanzanian government? And what, what have the effects of that uh, government policy been so far on the processes you're describing? Um, yes, there is, absolutely. Um, and I have a, a 
slide to show this afternoon about the, the Tanzanian war on drugs, and they have a picture of a big snake with a marijuana leaf head that's coming down to, that's encircled a drug user that's getting ready to swallow up Not the drug Not a syringe, user. but a marijuana. It's actually user. marijuana, because they're all, there's issues with marijuana, too, and that's much more use of that, and that's an issue. So UNODC went over to Tanzania, along with Tanzania, you know, the U.S. government um, helped set up a um, anti-drug commission and is, you know, help setting up and establishing policies are very, very similar to our own. And the approaches that the Tanzanian government has used are very similar to ours. So, you know, with Bush money in terms of PEPFAR and what can be done in terms of effective ways to really prevent HIV in these populations, they've found in Brazil and Eastern Europe and other places that the most effective way that you can really control the epidemic with drug users is a needle exchange program, which we aren't allowed to do by the, with the government money here in the U.S., and they aren't going to allow in Tanzania either. So the PEPFAR money that we've gotten to try to do outreach with the drug users is all concentrated on voluntary counseling and testing and recruiting them and getting them on antiretrovirals. But you had to sign an agreement under the Bush administration that you would never sponsor or use the money for an, a needle exchange program. And this cannot change under the well, Obama be, administration? We're hoping it can, but you know, everybody's hoping Obama can do a lot of things in a very short amount of time, so we're hoping it'll change. We don't know yet. So as an expert uh, in this field, what are your policy recommendations? If you had uh, all the power needed to effect the changes necessary, what would okay. you do? Well, I, I, let me go back and answer your other question that I didn't get to say. Um, you asked how it's affecting policy. So one of the things when President Kikwete came into power was he said he was going to stop drug trafficking. And he was actually very, very effective doing that his first year there. And that's why there were so many problems in terms of the drug users getting product in 2005, 2006. The mules weren't, were being caught at the airport or weren't coming through. So for a while before the traffickers had figured out that they were going to use the land routes, um, there wasn't very much around. And so what happened was not that people quit using, but they got engaged in more risky behaviors. So people were sharing more, and this flash blood sort of emerged. But one of the other things happened was you used to have to go to the pusher to buy the product. At that point in time when the police, what, what happened when we had um, begun presenting our research on World AIDS Day and a lot of stuff was on the media was the reaction to finding out more about drug users. And, and a month before that, Amina Chifupa, who was a a uh, member of parliament had stood up in front of parliament and said, this is in November of 2006, that we need to identify the drug barons and we need to talk about this and, and do something to help our youth get away from um, drugs. And there was a lot of media coverage about this for about six months and people saying we have to do something. But during the same time period, because it was, the, the drug was so policed so tightly and not available, the drug users and the, the police activity at this time was to actually go into pushers' sites where they lived and then wait for users to come in and arrest them all. And, you know, so really focusing on the small-scale user instead right. of, you know, large. And, and what it did was drive the product out of pushers and onto the street, so young men and women started taking it to the bus stand. So all of a sudden, people who hadn't been exposed to the drug, you could just be standing on a bus stop waiting to, for your bus and all of a sudden somebody could present you with a heroin. So that's, I mean, a product of the, the way that the policing has gone on. And at the same time, the pharmacists started hearing about, what we, about the problem and they, they were like, oh no, we, we sell syringes in our, you know, so we actually should stop selling syringes. So then, you know, we had to inter 
interact with them also and say, no, no, that, you know, we, we don't want them sharing. Because what people do if they can't afford 10 cents to buy a syringe is people with used ones, they throw them in a pile often when they walk away from the site. So if somebody's desperate, they'll go out and pick up the used one from the pile. And if they don't have clean water either, they'll go and just get water from a puddle outside to mix up with the heroin. So we want to try to, you know, talk to them about bleach and what they have to do to make sure that they're safe and not, you know, sharing blood and all the different pathogens that way. So if, if I, you know, had money and could do anything about it, I would be really focusing on, I mean, there's two, two aspects. So one's the drug, drug trafficking that has, you know, stuff to do with international organizations and that's the government's thing. And what we can do in terms of what's happening with the user and our focus with HIV prevention would be really trying to set up a needle exchange program and being able to help the um, sex workers organize in some way so that they can take care of themselves and be safe. Because what's happening is a lot of their customers are offering them more money if they won't use a condom. And so, and I'll talk about that a little bit today in terms of the politics of that in, dif in the different venues in Dar es Salaam. But, the drug users in Kindoni hide the fact that they use because they don't want other people to know because there's so much stigma attached to being a drug user. But also they're supposedly ruining the trade because other, other sex workers are angry with them because they'll take any price if they're desperate, if they're going through a, what's called, a withdrawal is called arrasto, it's a being lost, it's an English word that's been Swahiliized. So being lost to society in a sense, but also going through withdrawal and if you'll do anything to avoid going through withdrawal if especially if you haven't made a decision that you want to leave drug use so they'll take any amount of money and then you know the other women aren't happy with that and they'll you know willingly more willingly you know agree to have sex without a condom so that's a huge issue too so it'd be more about education and trying to pay more attention to actually the clients rather than focusing on the women too I mean if the clients weren't there things would change, so. Great. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Cheryl McCurdy of the University of Texas Houston School of Public Health. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Scheel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us a message at Africa dot podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.